I raro i a rangi i runga i a papatuanuku kei ngā maunga whakahi, kei ngā wai whakateritani whānau mai ki tō tātou hui, tō tātou wānanga i te rānei. Uh, kei aku nui, kei aku rahi tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, e tika na, kia uh, ka, ka mihi ki te, ahi, uh, ki te iwi nō rātou te ahikā, hoi nō Ngāti Whātua, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou. O tira, uh, kia tātou katoa. So, just quickly, phones off. Um, they, uh, the organisation encourages you to use social media, but be very generous to the participants in your audiences, i.e. don't throw people under the bus with your comments. Aku mihi ki te High Commission of Canada uh, and the Australian Council for the Arts for their support. Before we get into our session, I would like to introduce, or just to let you know that Tania couldn't make it today, so um, we don't have her with us. So can I please introduce, no my e, e Robbie, uh, Robbie Miller is going to introduce our session. He is from the Australian uh, Council for the Arts. Yes, thank you for the warm applause, although I don't think they should be for me. Um, yeah, kia ora everyone, Robbie Miller from the Australia Council for the Arts, and it's actually an honour for me to introduce this morning's session, It's Not About Hope, uh, with Australia's own Chelsea Watergo and then also Atharoa's Dr M. Espina. Um, it's Not About Hope, as was said, is supported by us at Australia Council for the Arts, but then also the High Commission for Canada, and it's a privilege for each of you to hear their stories. Um, you know, for First Nations people of Australia, storytelling has, has been our way since time memorial. And it is a practice that is still very much fundamental to our way of life today. And from the Australia Council for the Arts, it's actually a privilege to be able to support remarkable storytellers like Chelsea to share their stories, their experiences and their perspectives on the world stage. And as I'm sure you'll find out in today's session, they are stories and perspectives worth paying attention to. So enjoy. Thank you. Kia ora, Robbie. Kia ora, Robbie. Thank you for that. Uh, so here we go. Um, there will be some time at the end for some questions. So s questions, not statements. So prepare yourself and the two mics here. So when I give you a couple of minutes, if you could make your way up and stand there so we can get through <coughs> as many as possible. Um, so, we have a saying in Te Ao Māori, ka mate kāingatahi ka ora kāingarua, always have a backup plan. I've not been so great at that in my life, I've only got one thing I can do. Um, but Emma, she was better, uh, she, she found herself uh, consulting the high rolling world of business complete with pencil, skirt and heels, and she traded those heels in for surgical crocs and she hasn't looked back. He mama he tākuta no Ngāti Raukawa me Ngāti Parau, takutuakana Emma wehipeihana. And from one colony to another, when she's told to have hope, her response is, fuck hope, be sovereign. A response which will resonate with many of us on this side of the Tasman, tō tātou Manuhiri Tuarangi, our special guest, always was, always will be, a Manunjari, a South Sea Islander, humai te pakipaki mō Professor Chelsea Warago. Um, so we'll just jump straight in since you're our guest, you have to go first. Um, right. <laughs> congratulations on a fantastic book, love the cover, Thank you. love the content. Um, who did you write this book for and what do you want them to take from it? 
Um, I wrote the book for Blackfellas. Um, and I'm very, and I had to explain that. I had to explain that to the publisher, um, and I had to continue to explain it, um, particularly for non-Indigenous readers, that just because I wrote it for black fellows and I centred the black reader, I'm not excluding anyone else. Um, I'm just giving the opportunity to experience what we experience when we encounter texts about us. Um, so yeah, I get a lot of um, white fellows sending me emails saying they love the book and they're sorry that they read it because they're white and it's not meant for them. Um, look, it's okay. You can buy the book and you buy it for your friends. Um, but yeah, I wrote it for Mob because my day labouring as an academic, particularly in critical Indigenous studies, I would leave home from Anala and drive to university and teach predominantly non-Indigenous audience and have really interesting conversations that I was like, I want to have these conversations with Mob. And I found that my best intellectual labour was being exhausted for a non-Indigenous audience, good ways. Um, and so I was like, I want to bring uh, the academic work and thinking that I've um, been doing and be in conversation with Mob exclusively about it and that you don't need to have to, have to do a PhD in order to think together as Mob. Um, and it's funny, in centering the black reader, people have said that it's not an academic text and... You know, I used to accept that, but I'm not accepting that anymore. I'm a professor. I wrote it. It's scholarly. And black fellows are intelligent people and we can have academic texts written for us. Um, white fellows don't have a monopoly over academic work. Emma, you had a similar experience um, when I asked you about who you wrote the book for and what the response has been. Want to share that? Yeah, I think that. Is that on? Hello. Can we have Hello. Emma? Can I, can I speak? Yeah, kia ora. Um, yeah, I had some feedback on a, a piece that I wrote about training to be a Māori doctor and um, at the University of Auckland we have a week-long symposium on Māori health and um, we find it, well, among my peers in our year, we found it excruciating um, because these conversations about racism and the history of colonisation and, and what things are really like in our country, um, that was the first experience for a lot of our non-Māori colleagues of learning about that. There's a deficiency a deliberate deficiency in our education system. And so I wrote about that experience from our perspective and I had some feedback um, that, well, that was really um, exclusionary um, and that, you know, actually for the Pākehā students that was a, such a powerful, transformative experience. And I wasn't denying that. I was explaining what it was like for us, which never gets talked about. So, you know, this idea that when you write for yourselves that it's somehow not available for anyone else. Being divisive. So divisive. <laughs> Got to stop being so divisive. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting that the, the commonalities and the threads, and I think to pick up on your point about academia, um, one of the I remember mean, first learned of you through um, Professor Paparangi Reid. Yeah, love her. Yeah. Loves you. Yeah, it's a mutual thing. And um, that way that we talk to each other across you know, the, the kind of um, geographic boundaries. So she talks about you and so I read about you and then, you know, I write about her. And so that kind of conversation, that wānanga between Indigenous scholars um, happens and we take it to our people. Mm. Um, I was just saying to Chelsea earlier on that I, I had to Google how to say her name because my name gets screwed up so much. I was like, I've got to get a name right. And I watched an uh, um, uh, Aboriginal presenter from SBS or ABC, I'm not sure which one he was on, and he was 
interviewing her about her book, but I don't think she could see him <laughs> because w- all I could see, I didn't even hear anything he said, but all I could see was he was just so alive and joyful that someone had written a book about his experience that he was now part of, you know, literature and he, and he you know, he, he was just overjoyed, you could just tell. And so what are other responses that you're getting from your book, from your people? So the other emails I get from blackfellas, um, particularly black women, are the quitting emails. So I get that I've just finished your book and I'm quitting my job. I've had enough. I'm like, I love it. done. Um, and I used to feel bad about it, but I actually feel very proud of that um, because in chapter four, I tell the story of uh, my ex-husband hanging in too long and the impact that it had of, you know, I won't look at you a bit. Um, and, you know, I wanted to share that learning um, so that others wouldn't go through that. And so I was like, oh, okay, um, maybe that's a really good thing um, to, to, that people that have uh, black fellas um, have that moment where we remember that we deserve better than what's on offer and it's okay to walk. Um, and so I feel, yeah, I'm actually really proud of that. And it's funny how different readers have received the book. So um, there are some settlers who feel very sad and unsettled by the book and think it's terrible and, oh, my God, the racism. Um, And yet black readers, Indigenous readers, feel, like, uplifted, got the jokes, feel powerful. And so it's just interesting, those different responses. And so I've just um, been nourished by black and Indigenous readers um, and what it's done for them. Um, because that's who I want my intellectual labour to be for. Mm. When Emma talks about Paparangi Reid, and I think Tina Ngata might be here. Are you here, Tina? Yep, there she is. (laughs) Um, And I started to read your book. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like a you know, on the other side of the Tasman version of all of our wahine tō on this side because the kōrero is so similar, just different experiences. And I wondered, Emma, um, you know, we've known each other a while and I know specifically where you grew up because I grew up down the road and, you know, (coughs) I want to say racist little fielding, but at times, you know, very biased fielding and biased living and places like that. When did you start to flip the colonial script in in your learnings? I mean, my mother, who's sitting in the front row, um, who is who is not Maori, but who nurtured my identity as a Maori woman, um, laid you know laid the groundwork for that when I was growing up. But I was not. Um, I was the only brown person in business when I was doing what I was doing, and so that was just kind of not a not a thing. Um, it was medicine that brought me to it because we um, I went through the Māori and Pacific Admissions Scheme, which is the social justice initiative to uh, increase the number of Māori and Pacific doctors in our country. We're only still only nearly four percent um, compared to a population of fifteen percent, um, and so that isn't just about training to be a doctor. That's connecting you with this community. It's not just your cohort. It's the people like Paparangi that went before us, and then all the ones through and now I've got my own students coming through um, so it's a movement rather than just a training program yep. mm-hmm. yeah so that really nurtured that I mean it, you know it's always there for you and I think that's you know having a daughter now who's in a, an immersion um, you know at, at Kura where, where our kids are um, she won't have any of that to unpack you know she's coming into the world with her identity and her real intact yeah she'll have other shit to deal with but like, <laughs> that's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's good 
Um, what I appreciate about your book, Chelsea, Another Day in the Colony, is the framing. Um, you challenge everything. You challenged me in that book. You know, oh, really? Re- well, you just reimagine the position of Indigenous people in such incredible ways, and it's really powerful. Where do you draw that from? Um, the kitchen table, uh, growing up. Um, you know, I, I honestly didn't realise, yeah, we were a sick people until I went to university and did an Indigenous health program. Um, you know, the stories at our kitchen table were about Aunty Dora living to over 100 and what she survived. Um, and it wasn't a story of oppression. It was a story of, like, our power and our strength. So I never knew the inferiority of blackness, though I had encounters with people who tried, had a go. Um, but there was never a sense of, you know, we, we, had, we grew up in a house where you never bow your head to white fellas. You never think you're less than. And I was raised by a white mother who was also very, um, uh, probably more radical than dad at times, but she could be because of her position, right? Her racialised and gender location. She could be a bit more cheeky than what dad could as a cosmetically apparent Aboriginal man um, who was born in the 40s. Um, Fascinating. So, um, yeah, it was the kitchen table. We we never thought that, we, we never believed in the idea that we were less than. And my undergraduate training, it was a predominantly Indigenous cohort of mature age students who we were exposed to predominantly white texts, white lecturers. You know, it was the 90s. It was whole epidemiological portraits of Aboriginal ill health, and that's the only way we could know ourselves. And I was lucky to just study alongside senior blackfellas who would just go the lecturers every class. Um, So I saw the knowledge being contested as a 17-year-old. And that was my grounding, I think, the kitchen table and that classroom. Um, Just I saw black refusal... Um, to subscribe to the violence of these racialized texts. And so I just didn't know another way. Um, and so I guess, yeah, that's why most of my writing now is subject to defo reads, um, because I just, I just can't buy into that idea, um, because I, it's just not true. And I really like the way that, you know, when you talk about academia, and I won't keep going back to academia because everyone sort of snores <laughs> when you start <laughs> yeah, talking sorry. about it, but um, just that, that the, the power of citing each other, reframing the discourse, and, and, then, that, and then that enters the world because it's, it's, um, it's taking possession of that, um, that power basis. And so um, that's what, you know, Paparangi, Elena, Donna Cormack, um, Sarah Jane, like all of these amazing wahine Māori who do that here. And then every time there's a new paper, it's like, great, I'm going to write that into my next piece of research. And it has yeah. the, you know, um, that using those tools, it feels very subversive. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, we're not alone, you know. Mm. Um, and also, yeah, reje- in rejecting the idea of Indigenous intellectual inferiority, we need to make sure that we're not reproducing that but I mean I had my strength based approach moment for a few years there where I thought we just tell really good stories and you know appeal for our humanity to be seen and yeah now fuck that um (laughs) uh, we should be able to tell the the heavy stories the hard stories the full truth of it and not have to continually worry about well what will white people think about us Mm. and that's really hard and still working with even black writers having these yarns about if your story is always framed upon winning over settlers, well, what's the point of telling it? Yeah. Um, and so there's got to be room for the beautiful, the ugly, um, the uplifting, the heartbreaking, all of it. It's really interesting in both your books you talk about, um, and, I, and I hope I'm recalling this correctly, but um, you know we're told all the time how sick we are mm. and... Um, when I think about policies and things, you know, closing the gaps, trying to close the gap up. And Chelsea, I think you say, when the gaps close, does that mean we're gone? 
we ended with we yeah. were overs. Yeah. Um, and it's such a low bar. So um, <laughs> that's what Rawiri Jensen a couple of years ago started saying is that we're not aiming for equity anymore. We're going further than that. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, someone just flips it and you go. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, we're, not, yeah. we're not equity projects. No. Yeah, yeah, that's right. right. And that's like your book. And I was like, oh, yeah, fuck hope. Yeah. yeah. I'm not <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it, since when was whiteness the measure of wellness? Mm. And the other one is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other one is um, progress. Like, yeah, oh, progress. God, I've never <laughs> thought about progress like that before. I kept thinking progress was good. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry to ruin it. No, um, yeah, tell us about that. And, yeah, I, um, I did believe in progress. I did believe in excellence, that excellence would somehow emancipate us. Mm. Um, and because we grew up believing we were better than, we had to be better than and ten times better than. Um, so we had that really drummed into us as kids, um, that whole Indigenous excellence. That's heavy. Um, let me let go of that. That's so freeing. But um, uh, So I used to believe in, you know, the appeal, the working hard, the... The cultural awareness workshop, um, (laughs) you know, the education guide, the manual, um, and just kept seeing that it's not doing anything. And you you have the, you know, when you teach um, in teaching or even in the health service when you're doing that cultural awareness stuff, it's like Groundhog Day. It's like year after year after, you're like, it actually isn't changing. We're just exhausting the same old labour, doing the same Mm. old thing. Um, But... I mean, if you think about settler colonialism um, and its goals, um, you can see how the story of progress aligns so clearly with the settler colonial project in doing away with our presence. Mm. So progress means us becoming like them, becoming less Indigenous, Mm. um, being only known as equity projects, not sovereign people. And so I began to see the, the, the lie of it. Um, and I saw the violence of it. And, I, you know, when you have mob who go into violent institutions to reform them, to change them for our people, um, only to be brutalised by those institutions, to be betrayed by them. And so there is a violence to the progress discourse for Indigenous peoples who love our peoples. Mm. I love how you name it. I know. I know. <laughs> you, you write about this in your book without those kind of names probably. Because well, not as well. Yeah, as well. <laughs> yeah. um, and also about the, you know, having to work ten times as hard. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about your whanau and yeah. your family and just that journey to get there. Yeah, and the really funny, not funny, kind of funny, horrible thing <laughs> about that piece, so it got published on Itangata as an excerpt last week yep. and um, the comments were fucking awful. And um, nothing else that I talked about, you know, the hysterectomy, the abortion, the, you know, whatever, hinting at leaving my husband, none of that got anything from the other pieces that have been put up. That discussion about being a Māori doctor and, and naming racism... Um, it just was, you know, my, my mentions were flooded with hate speech. And um, and it was so ironic because it's like you're just proving my yeah, point. Yeah, like, ta <laughs> You know? just proved your point. Yeah, well done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also the, you know, the want of those comments to erase you mm. as a Māori woman, you yeah. know, just, I mean, I get that because I'm fair-skinned, yeah, but yeah. you are clearly a Māori-looking woman, but that, you know, they can't see that. Mm. And so it's just such a dangerous... Yeah. It's almost like, you know, it's, you're afraid to put stuff out there because you get that. And that's where yeah. Chelsea comes in because she says, be present yeah. um, to Good. turn up. So can you explain to us about turning up? Well, the, the other thing is, I had to reconfigure how I thought about power, how 
visited upon me violently and the power that I my body holds. Um, and it was through, yeah, suing my employer, the University of Queensland, on a race sex discrimination case, which I didn't prepare for, that I really got to understand power in a different kind of way. And I got to realise that that resistance is uh, a testament to our power, that you did something, mm. that it caused that response. Um, and so the, the, the power of the resistance against us speaks to the power of, of our work and what we're doing. That's nice. And you've got to find joy in that mm. and laugh at them yeah. um, because they don't have power. And, and I think, you know, I often think about power as only something that's, that's um, particularly um, in, amongst colonising people, that power is only evidenced by, you know, in a hierarchical way that's imposed violently upon people. That's how we see it. Um, but as Indigenous peoples, we know power, mm. a power that doesn't have to be violent, um, a power that is grounded in our existence um, and coexistence. Mm. Um, we don't have to enforce it on someone else for us to know that we have power. Mm. And so going through dealing with, you know, a, a Sandstone University as an Indigenous academic first in family, the daughter of a truck driver, um, taking on that fight mm. and being pushed out and, you know, all kinds of horrible things... Um, I walked from that realising my power. I wasn't powerless. Kilda. Yeah. And that, I think on that point, one of our Māori politicians said, um, you know, the fear and resistance comes because they think that we're going to do to them what they did to us. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So Chelsea writes in the book about turning up and it's, for me, I mean, this is how I translate it, is that feeling where you're like, oh my God, I've got to have to say something because this is so wrong. And, you're like, and it all comes out and it's like, Whoa! <laughs> all those kinds of things. So mm. how do you turn up in your job, Emma? Well, this is so... It's a constant um, mental check that I have to do that I'm not becoming institutionalised because I have a nice job and I'm respected and I have people that like me and, and lots of, you know, mentors that are trying their best and wanting change and all this, you know. So that's a, that's a daily thing. Like, it's actually really difficult. Um, and I think, you know, we've talked before about that spectrum of activism where you can be outside saying the stuff that needs to be said. You can decide to be inside and change from within. But that's, in some ways, the more dangerous, personally, position to take because you can kid yourself mm. and start to think that you're doing the work still when you're actually just comfortable. Um, so, I mean, I don't get that much to my face, like it's mostly mm -hmm. personally. Um, but for me, it's defending our rangatahi, so our students and then my colleagues. So um, we had a very serious complaint our, last year in one of the departments um, where a friend of mine was subjected to 90 minutes of um, racist abuse from a, um, a, a UK fellow. Um, and there were seven or eight other people in the room didn't stand up for her. Mm. Um, and she, you know, things like... Um, your, oh, what are you, like, even, like, 138th Māori, like, how did, why did you even go through that scheme, um, and if you're so smart, why did you need that, and um, what's that for anyway, and what about, you know, uh, the Chinese doctors, like, shouldn't yeah. they get the same privilege, blah, blah, you know, all that same stuff, and, um, but what was really interesting was the response to that, so, um, because of our connectivity, and we have a critical mass now, not enough, but there are enough of us around, and we all know each other, to be able to pick up the phone and talk to one of my mentors, who's pretty senior in the college that looks after this particular um, specialty, initiated that, this, the CMO at our hospitals and ally was like, this is absolutely not on, and it got escalated and that person lost their job. And that was an example of, you know, having all the right people in the right places. But the thing was still going on, and we were only able to act on it because it was so overt, mm -hmm. you know. 
And so anything that's anything less than that is almost impossible to police and keep our people safe. That's standing up, that's turning up, but those other people in the room didn't turn up that day. Right. I guess that's the message, eh? Is well, that's, and that's also the hospital hierarchies, which is difficult because, mm. you know, that the, the abuser was the most senior person in the room. And so, you know, we've got a lot of work to do to enable people to be able to speak up safely in those settings. I'm going to um, open the floor shortly, so if you've got some, start coming out to the mics and we'll have some questions. I know that there's some people here who have. Um, if there is someone, you know, what's your advice to people who are afraid to turn up but want to? How do you start? Um, look, just do it. And I think think about every opportunity as a training opportunity. Like, you might not get it right. And there are times where I resent being cast as a caricature, but just be that bitch. Like, honestly... <laughs> Honestly, like, either way, we're cast as a caricature. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so why not evolving, choose yeah. the one you want to be and be the superhero that you're supposed to be? Um, and, and try it. Just see what happens when you try a different strategy. Because this thing of us just, like, our bodies carrying it and taking it home mm. and our kids having to, yeah. if not hear about it, feel it when we come home. Mm. Um, like, there's a violence in the silence, we're worried about the violence of the hierarchy, but it's far more violent when you take it home. Yeah. And so just have a go. Like, really fuck around and find out. Yeah. And, and then reflect on it and talk <laughs> about it and, you know, and go, hey, that worked, yeah. that was interesting. Like, try something different um, and, and have fun with it. Yeah. You know, like... That's the we, joy bit. The joy yeah, bit. And, yeah, and, yeah. and yeah. you know, because we're giving power to the hierarchy yeah. when we forget our own power. And so we've got to check ourselves on this stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and have some friends to debrief with it and some Prosecco and have a laugh and, uh, yeah, and then write about it. Yeah. Um, it's all material. It's all material. Everything's content. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and what's it, you know, your silence will not protect you. Your silence or your excellence won't protect you. Yeah. This whole thing about being, you know, better blacks, better Indigenous peoples, it doesn't work because um, yeah. our bodies are feeling it. That's why we're dying so early of things that other people aren't. Um, so if we really love ourselves, then we would we would realise that we deserve better than what they're offering. Do you um, have a way of clearing, protecting yourself from that? Shit that you got. Oh, um, what do you do? Yeah. yeah, what do you do? Tell us your. <laughs> Give us I mean, some tips. it's all it's got an amazing work-life balance. And <laughs> <laughs> um, the aunties, the Wainanga, the you know, I've got some karaoke from Auntie Stace. Um, yeah, I think just really being connected with each other is my th- you know with with other Indigenous women is um, is the important thing for me and with my mother and my daughter. Um, and I, that just to come back to us talking about each other and citing each other across space and time, um, I got a real shock when I read that um, Dr. Lilla Watson is one of your mentors because when I was growing up, we had her quote in, a, in purple, um, what's that stuff that, you know, recycled paper, you know, very lesbian purple recycled crate, paper crate, poster. Crate paper? You know, if, if you've come to help me, you're wasting your time, but if oh, you've come because bless. your liberation is bound up in mine, then let us work together. And oh. so that was just, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was on my wall as a child, Don't you know. Worry. And That's here we are. Good one, Mum. Yeah. Good one, Mum. Yeah. How do you look after you? <sighs> Not very well. Um, no, I run. I love running. I love the freedom of it. Um, and also reminding how strong my body is. Mm. Um, if I can get over that hill, then I can get over anything. Um, I run. Um, I preserve our kitchen table time. So it's, we're a board game family, me and the five kids. Mm. Um, and just shut the world out. And um, 
play to the death. Uh, very competitive. Um, uh, I choose who I work with um, and I, I very much am values-based now with anything I do, whether it's our Institute for Collaborative Race Research or um, Kurumba Institute, the students I supervise now um, and the work that I do is work that comes to me from mobs so I'm not having to exhaust very much of my labour doing stuff I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. So that makes, that makes nice. it very nourishing that I'm like, oh, I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing and I'm doing what people are calling me to do and so... Um, even that of having this bit of freedom to do work that you really believe and I've, I don't take that for granted. That's a real privilege. Um, and so I feel, you know, I feel a bit bad doing the self-care thing because I'm like, I'm lucky. I, yeah, I get to, it's, you know, it's heartbreaking work but it's also really nourishing work and I get to choose the terms in which I'm operating mm-hmm. in my day job, which not everyone – it's taken a long time to get to this place. Um, but, yeah, um, but I don't, I don't do – I don't do self-care very well. I'm still a bit sceptical about self-care as a couple baths and retreats kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> you mean like Western kind of care? Yeah, that individual. Because I think, you know, caring for black people is self-care. And so um, I sort of struggle with the kind of individualised notion of care. I'm surrounded – I, you know, choose to live in an Arla. It's a, you know, a strong, close-knit community that I'm very privileged to be a part of. So I feel like I've created a life that is caring. So I don't need to check yeah. out. Yeah, it's connection, eh? Yeah. 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 That's why Although yoga's great, I'm sure. That's yeah. it, the way and therapy's quite good as well. <laughs> like Apparently, I've heard. Yeah, um, nine, that's yeah. why you've got women <laughs> saying they're going to quit. <laughs> yeah. They're like, I want to be like you. Oh. Yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> when I live I'm a cautionary tale also, so maybe yes, not. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know it's terrifying. I'm terrified even being here with these two incredible oh. women. So, yes, here we have a question. Please tell us who you are. Um, I'm a surgeon and have had the pleasure of working with Emma. Um, just a question that's arisen from a, a recent conference that both Emma and I were at in Adelaide, um, was in the Indigenous Health section, and it was about weaponising research. I know this is dragging it back to academia, but I'm interested in the thought about weaponising mm. research for, for Indigenous perspectives. For a good, good cause. Chelsea? Yeah. Yeah, look, I do believe in the possibilities of knowledge production, um, but I'm also sceptical about the academy and what it does. Um, and I think we have to be honest about that. I think Indigenous health research is so very conservative in our country. Um, it's filled with epidemiologists, um, and we need to change that. Good ways. Um, so I think some people talk about weaponising research, and I'm not sure that we're fully there yet. Um, and... I'm interested in broadening the parameters for who are considered theorists. Um, so it can't just be the epidemiologist, uh, the, 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 you know, who's yeah. th- that hierarchy kind of stuff. And um, we have to change the way knowledge, the, the knowledge production is undertaken and we need to um, defend Indigenous knowledge systems and our rules, and I don't think that we're, we're there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still, we still have so many academics trying to perform to this really violent uh, methods of knowledge production. Um, and, yeah, we haven't changed it. But I do... I mean, I, in terms of weaponising um, research, I found a way to weaponise research, but it's not with peer-reviewed journal publications. It was building a private race research institute and doing expert reports to coronal inquiries and using our understanding of structural racism to hold the state accountable for what they did. Yeah. 
Now, that, those 50-page expert reports for two coronal inquiries last year doesn't count anywhere on my track record as an academic, really. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, so research impact is still so very narrow mm. that much of the most important work is not being counted. And so, unfortunately, we've got people, our people in the system that are still performing to the system's rules and, you know, may do yarning, but that's not weaponising research. Um, it's actually um, thinking about how we put our intellectual work to work for political and legal purposes to be of service to our community. And I think we need, we need to do more of that. But the fact that we had to create a whole private company mm. to do that work tells you about the limits of the academy. Mm. I think that's you know the difference here and some subtleties around having a treaty. Um, and I know that Donna Cormack, I think, recently published a paper around the rights. And so we can use the treaty as a, a way to say, you know, in, in research, so we have a right to scrutinise the Crown. And so this is, you know, that's kind of our starting off point to, to make the research pro-equity or you know, colonising, whatever you kind of want to do. So it's using all the tools that you have, yep. but being realistic about their... The limitations. Yeah, their limitations. Limitations of the unbinding recommendations. Yeah, and also, yeah, like the master's tools, right? Yeah, like, that's that's, that's happening, but oh well. Kia ora, come on forward. Kia ora, my name's Barbara Hock, I'm from Rotorua. Um, My interest now is working with children. Um, So... uh, some of the comments you've made in terms of being able to stand up is, is that, you know, it's like a big question. <laughs> I'm struggling to make it a, a, a specific one, but around children already being funneled into um, don't stand up, take mm. the senior person's, you know, mm. bow down to them. So how can we um, enable children more? Mm. I mean, with my kids, we have very honest conversations. And I should say, like, we grew up having to read... Well, not having. We grew up reading the Courier Mail every morning that got delivered. And me and Dad used to read it and argue over it. And I had permission to argue with him at the kitchen table, which, outside of that space, not allowed to do. But we had this space. And I certainly recreated that with my own kids around our kitchen table, about honest conversations. And I didn't tell them, oh, no, it's not about that and just rise above it and work harder. It's like, what do you think's going on there? And there are times where the kids say, do we, can we please not deconstruct this? Um, Is it decolonisation day again? <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to unpack it. Um, but with my kids in... Um, uh, because all of them had to deal with the violence of the curriculum as well as the kind of, you know, racial slurs in the playground. And it's been the curriculum that's been most violent than those racial slurs. And I remember the eldest boy at 11 and he started a private school and he got called the N-word. And um, I yarned him and said, oh, so, you know, how do you feel about that? And he's like, oh, maybe if I was younger I probably couldn't handle it. But now I'm older, I'm kind of used to it. And he was like 11. Um, But then... um, the curriculum stuff, um, my second eldest, um, his body was, uh, he's my fairest child, um, uh, identifies as a non-binary trans. Um, on every intersection, their body is being misread and their bodies had to endure that violence. And um, we'd often have conversations when, when things would come home to the kitchen table and I'm like, so what do you think is going on there? What are you going to do about it? Like, what's your... And as a parent, there are times where I know, though, 
okay, tag me and I got this now. Mm. Like you had a, had a go and had a play, but I'm in. Mm. Um, there's times where he organised a like, pamphlet campaign across the school, like amongst other kids, and I'm like, go for it, I'll back you. Like, um, so I think it's just letting our kids, like not thinking that our kids are, aren't, aren't smart enough to understand this world and being honest about what the world is like because when they leave our, our front door, they've got to deal with the reality of it. And I think we're, we're betraying them if we don't give them the weapons and the armour to be able to step outside to fight it and not kind of giving them this sort of, you know, uh, false view of the world. Mm. Um, and, and we can do that. And I think particularly as um, parents um, who've grown up as, you know, racialized. We know some things about it and we have to trust ourselves of what we can give to our children, the gifts that we give to our children, that, that honesty and the things that we've learned and to share that knowledge. We have a responsibility to do that. And I thought so it's okay to have hard conversations about race and mm. class and gender and sexuality and mm. um, encourage our kids to think critically about the world because they're going to be the ones in charge of it. Mm. I was yeah. just thinking, I don't think our daughters have a problem speaking truth to power, <laughs> <laughs> specifically. Sometimes I think, yeah. I'm like, ooh, ooh, yeah, less, <laughs> less truth to power. And they're like, um, mum. Yeah, and well, that's interesting though, isn't it? Because I, yeah, I, I guess we have to moderate ourselves a little bit and not limiting them and their bravery and, you know, like you say, step in if, they, if you need to. But they can dream bigger than we can because they've grown up in a completely different space, particularly our girls growing up in, you know, Rumaki unit and having their girl and stuff. So that's more of my concern is just not mm. trying to hold her back. Mm. Yeah, I guess the just... Not that I'm on this panel, but be on this <laughs> panel for one moment um, to answer your to help a little bit with your question is that what we know and it's probably the case in there is that our children are incredibly privileged, young Maori, and so you know they're at Kurakaupapa, and so the vast majority of Maori children are not, mm. and they're being failed by the education system. So we need to create safe spaces for them to be able to. Our kids don't have an issue; they have the same conversations around the kitchen table, and we love that and we support it but I think uh, other households um, have you know kids don't have the same voice mm. so children I guess we sh often I think our school should be a sister school for a school in South Auckland and we should exchange things and bring ourselves together and share you know and then I run out of time and so yeah. that sucks and I need to make more time for those kinds of things. So can we all just do that as a community and it yeah. just be better people? I don't know. And everyone be part of it. Like the interesting thing um, uh, in medicine is quite, you know, so what we're trying to do now is in our different hospitals is have, you know, groups, rupu, where it's just the Māori doctors and we get together and we, you know, deal with shit together. Um, and recently I heard one of the um, uh, internationally trained uh, consultants say, oh, it's such a shame that we can't all have access to those conversations. You know, we, I want to learn a bit of Maori as well. And yeah. it's just like, you know, like we have to do that work and this work and that thing and we're just trying to keep ourselves safe, yeah. you know. There's some things that we just need to sort out on our own first. Mm. Yep. Um, I'll bring this wahine in here. Um, Get up, too, close. I'm too short for this microphone. <laughs> <laughs> um, kia ora, um, I'm Summer. Um, I'm currently doing my master's thesis on my nana's uh, social welfare records from foster care in the 1930s. And so this whole discussion about academia is really, really interesting to me. Um, and, and so to bring it back to something sort of um, nerdy and philosophical, I was reading, I've been reading a lot about intergenerational trauma and the transmission of intergenerational trauma. 
um, caused by colonisation and how that's a really controversial idea, that idea that trauma could be, I guess, um, transmitted down through generations. And I wonder if you could speak to um, why that might be a difficult concept, uh, how we might communicate that, um, what that means to you. So I can't speak from a clinical perspective, but I struggle with the intergenerational trauma discourse um, for various reasons, and I'm not saying that it's not, um, it's not a thing, um, but there's a few reasons I struggle the way in which it, it, it frames, it positions, it, it almost makes a claim that our ancestors did something wrong and how they survived. Um, it suggests that the trauma of, of the violence of settler colonialism hasn't stopped, uh, has stopped, that it's a, a past thing. Um, so I, I, I'm troubled by the discourse of intergenerational t- trauma politically. I can't speak of it clinically. Um, and I just think about um, intergenerationally the stories that have been passed on in our family. And yes, our bodies hold the trauma, but also hold power and the the medicalization of of our bodies. Um, there's a danger in that it it reinforces this idea that there is something inherently wrong with us mm. and with our people that came before us who had to do what they had to do to survive for us to be here. Mm. Um, and so I I worry about the way in which it sentences us to a particular kind of fate. Um, and that's not to say we don't have to deal with intergenerational trauma mm. or that business of it, but I, I worry about, particularly in um, at home, the way in which it's used. And it's another way for settlers to feel sorry for us and insist mm. that we don't have the ability to have control of our own affairs as well. Mm. Yeah, there's probably an epigeneticist in the audience, so I'm not even going to get into the science. But um, <laughs> I think that the, what you're most clearly saying is us taking charge of a narrative and telling the story because and you have to be so vigilant about how you talk about these things because they do get used against us and that's why the words we love the words because that's our power right yeah Yeah. but we have to be telling the story that's what I'm talking about (laughs) (laughs) how you do that that's amazing amazing. it's incredible Tēnā koutou, uh, te tuatahi he mihi kawana ki a koutou katoa te tokotoru nei Emma Chelsea Mihingārangi koutou kua tu kaha uh, i mui te pēhitanga o te karauna. Thank you so much, first of all, before I say anything, for all of the work that you do and the strength of your kōrero, the forthrightness of your kōrero. I think some of the corrections we make in our hearts and bodies and minds in order to make it through a colonised experience sometimes winds up with us being quite wonky and we need, <laughs> um, you know, that straight corridor that you offer mm. to be able to correct ourselves, to Kia stand ora. up to mm. power. So, he mihi. Mm. Atu kia koutou. Kia ora. Nice. Um, so, I want to talk about, uh, ask about white fragility and good natives. And um, <laughs> this is yours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, heck no. <laughs> so we, we know that particularly when you 
I don't like the word radical because it's just truth-telling. Radical speaks more to the colonial context in which you tell truth. But when you do tell that truth in that colonial context, you get cast as radical. And one of the more common responses in institutionalised settings is to surround themselves with good natives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they wind up weaponising us against each other. Um, so I'm just I'm kind of saying that half here so that people know we see you. Yeah. <laughs> we see that we see you. Um, but also, what do you think are some of the conversations that we need to have, mm. and what's the nature of those conversations that we need to have around our complicitness mm. in that dynamic? Mm. Kia ora. Kia ora. Beautiful question. <sighs> yeah. Um, mm. I've definitely been a good native, and I I know that some people think of me as that, um, and that again is that corded or around being institutionalised and how you navigate that. Um, I guess you're com- again back to our community. So I check in everything, all my every, and it's not medical necessarily. It's all the aunties are like, oh, I did this. Is that all good? You know, this is happening. What's you know, what's my context for this? Um, because if I have the support of my community, then it then it then I know that it's ticker. Um, and, you know, we always, it's not just us, right? So we're, if we're being a, um, a gateway for others, you know, if, if you look like you're the good native, but you're bringing some, you know, ropiers, cousins out the back, then, you know, that's, that's part of the, um, that process as well. So, but yeah, I th- the thing I struggle with the most is, I'm, am I kidding myself? You know, am I still doing the work or am I just you know, having a nice life. Yeah, look, um, yeah, it's a thing. Um, and, you know, some of the work that I'm doing at the moment is looking at how to build Indigenous intellectual collectives. And um, we've made it a values-based field that we're building. Um, and I know that there are some Indigenous people that will never be part of that because mm. they don't share those values. Um and they will do perfectly fine in their careers because mm. there will always be a white person who will make them a CIB on a project that they have no intellectual contribution yeah. to make to it. Um, I just have to let go of that. I have to let go of that because I know that's the machinery of things. You know, we had the native police. Mm. They're still here. Um, they're the ancestry ones um, mm. who will have proximity to whiteness and not to the mob that they've yet to connect mm. with. Um, and they, and it's gonna, it's gonna, it used to make me really wild and I'm like, no, I'm just going to build community. Mm. We're going to build our community and, and let them ones go. Let them do their thing. They'll, they will always, there will always be people who will benefit from proximity to white supremacy. Mm. Um, and it's freeing to let go of that and go, we're just going to build our community on our values um, and roll in together um, and support each other, knowing that the path that we have to take is going to be a lot longer mm. career-wise than some of those those ones um this white fragility thing so white fragility annoys me as well um (laughs) well the term so it's a term conceived of of course by a white woman who has made the violence of 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 whiteness sound like precious like fragile um white fragility is really violent um uh uh, and it's just funny that like it's one of the like top selling race books because it's written by a white woman i mean even in in this space, we see how races reproduce. The hierarchy of races reproduced. Even theorising about race. Um, so I, I don't talk about white fragility anymore. I, I don't um, I don't name it that um, because I think it it, un, it 
doesn't do justice to the violence that is visited upon black and Indigenous peoples when it's exercised. Um, and also this thing about, you know, people being uncomfortable about talking about race and racism. Um, I'm not dealing with race as an emotional project anymore. It's an intellectual one. It's a structural one. Mm. And there's a lot of anti-racism work that deals with the emotions and the feelings. Mm. Um, and, of course, then centres whiteness in the, in the midst of all of that. Um, and what I love, you know, I have some undergrads who do like research placements with us and we help give them a, a language to describe what they're going through um, and a th way to theorise about what their body's feeling beyond the emotion mm -hmm. of it. And I love the power of that. Um, and you see these young undergraduates going, yeah, and, and having that strength. So I'm more interested in how do we build um, intellectual work around race for those who are, whose bodies are screaming out for it not for those who are resisting it. Um, yeah. I don't know, I've rambled, sorry. Yeah. No, that's yeah. amazing. Tēnā koe e te and for those who don't know, Tēnā is our best tuna rapper. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and we love you for that tuakana. <laughs> and here's another one of our tūngāne who's the best tuna rapper, John Miller, <laughs> activist. What do we call you these days? Kia ora, tēnā koe. Well, Tamiti told people that, they, that the young people... 50 years ago, would thought I was a police spy when I was photographing <laughs> Waitangi protest. <laughs> anyway, Namihi Nui Kina Korero Erua Itaatanei Tina Koro Ame Te Kaifakahari or Tina Hui Emihi. Chelsea, I'd like to ask you um, if it passes the forthcoming referendum, what effect would the um, Indigenous Voices to Parliament? Uh, derived from the Uluru um, Statement of the Heart, have on your particular field and uh, how much reference is being made to um, our Māori situation with the Treaty in New Zealand. Kia ora. Thank you. Uh, I always get the voice question. <laughs> um, look, I'm very sceptical about what the voice um, will offer. Um, there's the Clause 3, which basically the government of the day gets to decide the membership, the power, the scope, everything. So I'm like, how's that different to what we currently have? Um, yeah, and the I think the Yes campaign has been as violently racist as the No campaign for black fellas. Um, because if we dare speak about the questions we have about it, then we're bad natives um, and we just don't know the law. Um, and so it's been really condescending. And I just think, wow, how can such a supposedly emancipatory thing be so violent in the process of it? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, look, I'm, I'm not hopeful about, uh, surprise, surprise, um, about the voice. And I get there are some that believe that it will offer some things... Um, I, I'm, I'm just not convinced. And, you know, at the moment in uh, back home, you've got, um, you know, the Labor Party, Federal Labor talk, you know, wanting the voice. But when Albanese was questioned about what the voice would have to, you know, what how the government would listen to the voice on climate change, he's, like, dismissed it and said it was, like, absurd to think the voice would have a say on climate change. Mm. Fuck. <laughs> Saw that. And that's the guy championing this, right? Mm. In Queensland, we have, uh, we're on track to treaty again with the Labor Party. The, this is how progressive the colony is over there. Um, and for the last two years, we've had a Labor government impose um, these youth justice reforms, which has overlooked the Human Rights Act and targeting Aboriginal children in particular. Mm. Um, and so we're on track to treaty to reframe our relationships, mm -hmm. but the state is exercising more power 
to incarcerate more Indigenous children, and Queensland's the only state that is increasing child inca- Indigenous child incarceration rates. So you see these, like, it's, it's very tricky, this whole thing, that there's these, the state offers these things at the same time are doing these other things that are really violent. Yeah. And I'm like, make it make sense. Um, Wow, that's so familiar. And in the midst of all this, we've got vigilantes in Rockhampton Mm -hmm. harassing black homes, Mm -hmm. um, even while the state is so oppressive Mm -hmm. and targeting black children. So, but we're on track to treaty. We all should feel really good about that. Mm. Progress. And you can um, follow Chelsea online and help her share that story widely Mm. and build communities, even Mm. if they're online. Too quickly. Kia ora, hello. Um, hi, I'm Jazz. I actually had the horrifying moment last night of seeing that I was on this panel and no one had told me <laughs> and sent an email and just confirmed that I wasn't. Um, so ora, lovely to be here in the audience. I've learnt so much. Um, I just wanted to ask you guys, you've talked a lot about the complexity of being visible storytellers but also the power in it and I wonder if it's something you're going to pursue and keep doing and being in these sort of storytelling spaces and doing the story work. Emma? Hell yes. <laughs> she's got so much time. <laughs> she's fixing people over here. She's going to write over here. Yeah. <laughs> Chelsea? What do you mean by the question? I mean, like, it's a vulnerable space and there's so much work being done behind the scenes and there's strength that comes with being visible, but there's also vulnerability. And I guess, like, are you more interested in being on that front line or, like, doing that sort of groundwork and letting other people do the story presence? Does that make sense? Just to follow up on my my comment, I'm able to say that because of the enormously privileged position that I'm in. So I have a well-paid job um, that's secure and it's so well, unless I get fired (laughs) speaking on this panel. Um, you know, um, well, I'm supported by my family, my community, so that, you know, as much as it is a vulnerability, there is an enormous amount of privilege in my ability to do this stuff. So, you know, it's not, like, all risk. Yeah. um, Well, I mean, because I do writing on the front line, it's not visible because, you know, the coroner's still trying to keep the report report out Mm. of the coronal inquiry and it's playing out behind the scenes. So there's writing I do that is frontline work. Mm. People might not see it but it's more frontline than some of the other other stuff. Um, and I think, again, with the Academy, um, when I wrote this book, suddenly people were like, oh, you're a writer. I'm an academic. I've been writing for some time now. Like, there's this thing with writers' festivals. If you haven't written a book, you're not a writer. Um, we're, lots of people are writers and do write in different kinds of ways, and I'm not trying to be a certain kind of writer. I'm finding ways to tell stories to fuck Kilda. with the colony in mm. all kinds of ways and to do justice to our people and honour you know, our humanity. Um, and so sometimes I'll do an op-ed and sometimes I'll do that. And at some point I'm going to have to write screenplays because I've got some TV shows I want to write. Um, so yeah. it's just finding different ways to tell stories and so I'm not wedded to uh, this idea of a particular kind of writer. Yeah, We're, we have range. Kilda. We have range, yeah. And just last question Thank over you. the side. Kia ora koutou and... Uh, Thank you so much for your kōrero. My name is Ara. Um, my question is, diversity and inclusion mm. as a project, mm. as a response to racial equity and justice, I'm just wondering um, if either of you have any thoughts of some of the conversations that we might be able to have in our communities. And when I'm talking about our communities, I'm speaking 
directly about ethnic communities who we engage in the model minority myth. Mm -hmm. um, we engage in approximating to whiteness. It is a work that we need to do and just thinking specifically about Aotearoa, mm. um, that conversation is quite strong as a response mm. so yeah I feel like diversity and inclusion is something you don't like either look I'm not a fan <laughs> um, uh, but I know yeah it's it's really gross the space the people making money off it oh um, sorry that's my feeling um, but yeah you know race is hierarchical um, and even in the category of black, there are hierarchies that work at a play, you know, and I, I think about at home, um, as an Aboriginal South Sea woman, I, I've got to be honest about that. Um, and um, I think that's the betrayal of the diversity inclusion stuff because um, I think what, what this interesting thing that we have to say both here and at home is about the intersection of race and indigeneity. Um, and a lot of the, you know, critical race work comes in the US and UK and it doesn't deal with the, the intersection of race and indigeneity, um, which places us always on the bottom rung of the ra racial hierarchy. And so um, this diversity and inclusion space, which doesn't deal with sovereignty, doesn't do justice then in terms of anti-racist practice. Um, and, yeah, and we see those hierarchies reproduced and people love being just one rung higher. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, if it, and, and uphold so the system if it means they're not on the bottom. And so as Indigenous peoples, we feel the violence of that. Um, so, yeah, I don't play with the diversity inclusion space. Um, and I think when we talk about, you know, sovereignty unceded, we're wanting to foreground Indigenous sovereignty. That needs to be at the heart of any anti-racist work. Um, and so that means changing that configuration and, and getting people to think seriously about, let's talk about solidarity and sovereignty rather than diversity Hold and on. equity. Kilda, holy shit! I've spent the last two years in broadcasting trying to get <laughs> talking about diversity. Shit, we need to do some shit, Emma. <laughs> we need to change our language and start turning up. We do turn up, but you know, turn up in that kind of way. Um, okay, I learned some things. Tina Koto, you've been a beautiful full audience, and you've brought some amazing fakaro and questions to these amazing wahine. Thank you so much for coming to us on this side of the ditch. Thank you. That was fun. Um, <laughs> honestly, you're truly... I'm going to come visit you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There we go. And like, um, like any good Māori, any good native, I've brought my kids to sing a waiata hoi no haramai koutou. Uh, o tira tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tatou katoa. Haramai. Mum. Mm-hmm. 
Tēnā koutou katoa. Three beautiful tauira. Ah, so good, so good.